Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Thanks for taking time to listen. My guest on the show today is one of the more colorful people I know in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Marty S. Because Marty and I attend many of the same meetings each week, we've gotten to know each other quite well over the past nine years. Unfortunately, those years included relapses after 10 months, then another relapse after 14 months of sobriety. It was after his last slip, however, which landed him in a New York City hospital after a failed suicide attempt, that Marty finally embraced the program and honestly got to work on sobriety. That was over six years ago, and he's been sober since. Frankly, Marty's first couple forays in AA were noticed by many of us as well-intentioned but half-hearted attempts to subserve the program with his own intellect and self-will for staying sober. It obviously didn't work. We were all familiar with the well-worn approach of just showing up at meetings but not doing the actual work. So, with no real investment in his own recovery or spiritual condition, but trying to run the show himself, it's not surprising he slipped early on. But the damage he'd done to his family, friendships, and career along the way finally caught up with him. So did the notion of checking out. By God's grace, Marty was given a second, or should I say, a last chance to build a sober life. Today, Marty is firmly anchored in the center of AA by virtue of his continual meeting attendance, close relationship with his sponsor, daily meditation and prayer, and lots of service work with sponsees. His commitment to long-term sobriety is reflected in his program, as is the ready acknowledgement that one drink could end it all. And while his story on today's AA Recovery Interviews podcast is as entertaining as ever, its underlying message of hope for those who may still be struggling is both immediate and vital for all to hear. I'm doing more face-to-face interviews these days, so audio quality on this podcast is quite good. This is the 53rd episode, with many, many more to come. But for now, tune into the next hour and enjoy my interview with my good friend and AA brother, Marty S. My name is Marty. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Marty. That's the simplest question anybody ever has to answer. I've been wanting to interview for you for, for quite a while now, and I know you know that. Um, when I first met you, I'm trying to think the first time you got sober... I didn't get to know you too well because you weren't there that long. <laughs> and then you left. And then, then we didn't see you for a while. And then we saw you again. When was the first time you came to Alcoholics Anonymous? My journey in AA started in 2012, mm-hmm. which, of course, now is, what, nine years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was at the prompting of uh, my wife uh-huh. and a senior partner in my law firm since mm-hmm. I'm a lawyer. Yeah. But as you just alluded to, my heart wasn't in it. And mm-hmm. um, I gave it a, a half-hearted try. Mm-hmm. I went to treatment later in 2012. Yeah. But again, that was at the uh, end of a veritable gun. And uh, so when you met me, it was probably in that time frame, 2012. 
So what was going on in your life in 2012 that made you want to go to AA? Well, let's see. I was uh, in my mid-40s, uh-huh. uh, practicing attorney, family, wife, uh, children at that time were in their early teens, uh, pre-teens maybe. And, you know, as I've come to learn uh, in my journey, the mid-40s for a lot of men and yeah. maybe women, but certainly mm-hmm. men is when uh, if you've got the alcoholism gene, as I think I have, mm-hmm. uh, you can put it off for so many years. But it seemed like in, the, in my mid-40s, uh, things were really starting to fall apart. In what way? Again, my wife was, you know, pointing out, as I already knew, that I was drinking way too much yeah. uh, daily. How did you respond to her when she brought it up? Of course, I equivocated and prevaricated and lied and tap mm-hmm. danced and mm-hmm. tried to appease her in every way except the obvious one, which is to stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we would reach agreements and negotiations, you know, have so many drinks each night and stop. And, uh, you know, it was just an ongoing thing. And, and I, I'm pointing the finger in her direction only because she's the one that shared my house with me and saw it firsthand. I see. My illusion was nobody else saw it uh, because I was primarily drinking in the evenings and on the weekends. So I convinced myself that nobody at work had a clue. Mm -hmm. None of my friends and my friend group saw it. Mm -hmm. But the truth is they probably saw it, but but they weren't faced with the daily consequences. Yeah, I get that. So how long were you married at that time in 2012? Uh, let's see. I'm, I just celebrated my 30th wedding anniversary, so that would have been just around 20 years. So were you actively drinking, and would you have considered yourself, knowing what you know now, an alcoholic? How many years into your marriage would you have maybe been labeled an alcoholic if you could label yourself looking back? Yeah, that's a great question. As we get further along the sobriety path, we look back and, and start pinpointing markers when, you know, oh, yeah, I can see now mm-hmm. I was abusing alcohol then. And it right. seems like it goes a little bit further back. With each year I get into sobriety, Yeah, <laughs> it goes further back. But in my case, you know, I got through law school and I was in my mid-20s and mm-hmm. started my legal career. And I would say by then I was heavily using alcohol, but I, I don't think I was actively abusing it. Um, Hmm. So somewhere in the next 15 years, but I mean, it's so gradual, as you know, Howard, Mm -hmm. sometimes you just don't see it happening until you look back. And so it's just gradual, but it got to the point where I knew when when I was hiding my alcohol use Mm -hmm. from the people that loved me the most, Mm -hmm. I knew there was something fundamentally wrong with that. When did that kind of behavior start? I would say sometime in my late 30s to Definitely in my early 40s. Wow. So that was going on for a while then before your wife pointed out to you that which you needed to do and 2012 rolls along. When did you first encounter alcohol or what in your family of origin? Was it a problem in the family or what, what was the, the backstory on that? It was a problem. My dad was uh, clearly an alcoholic, although mm. he was never officially diagnosed, nor did he ever get sober, but he left my family when I was a a kid. So I saw that happen and then Mm -hmm. would visit him as I grew up and he was almost always drunk. So I saw, I saw the ill effects of alcohol early on. And then as it would happen, my mother remarried and guess what? She Uh married another alcoholic. So I grew up with a stepfather who was 
in and out and drunk half the time. So I saw all this happening around me. And, mm-hmm. and I, like a lot of children of alcoholics, I swore to myself that I would never allow that to happen to me. Thought I was too smart and um, clever and responsible and ambitious yeah. to ever let alcohol take over. Yeah. So that that sort of planted the seed of de- of denial, which I would later grapple with. It's like when alcohol did, in fact, grab a hold of me, uh-huh. I would think back and think, well, I'm still not as bad as that guy. Yeah. Whether yeah. it was my dad or my stepfather or any other number of alcoholics I saw. Mm. But as it became increasingly clear I had a problem, I remember thinking more and more, oh, my God, I am becoming exactly like my dad. Like your dad. And my stepfather. And your stepfather. So you had the double whammy going on there, didn't you? And I had a mom who was an, nominally an, an Al-Anon. She went to a lot of Al-Anon when I was growing up. So I saw that side of it. I saw the recovery piece. But I didn't like that part either. And she actually took me to some meetings, I, I recall, when I was a kid. And I just rebelled against that, too, because I thought that was her problem. Uh-huh. And his problem and not my problem. So I had a negative view of of even recovery, strangely enough. Um, Mm. I didn't want anything to do with either side of it. So did you as a kid ever get the connection between drinking and alcoholism or the alcohol that you saw all around you and the problems that it was causing for your parents or was that something that escaped you? Well, what I always heard my mom say is, you know, it's a disease. And my immediate reaction, even as a kid, was, I don't buy that, that this is really a problem of willpower. Uh-huh. So I rejected that notion. So my, my attitude was, as long as I exercise enough willpower yeah. Yeah. and discipline in my life, I will never be like those guys. Yeah, I get that. You have a lot of siblings, too, don't you? <laughs> By a lot, if you mean I have nine, <laughs> I do. All products of, of one couple, my dad and my mom. Ten kids in how many years? Sixteen. Wow. Yeah, they uh, they got busy. And where were you in the pecking order? I'm number 10. I'm the baby. How did your siblings and their reactions and responses to your, your dad's alcoholism, how did that inform their beliefs? And then how did they influence your beliefs? Nine brothers and sisters ahead of you experiencing what you were yet to experience and all of them having their own responses and reactions that then perhaps they communicated down to you. What did, what did that whole milieu look like? Well, that's a great question. I'm sure we could spend a whole another hour talking about the whole family of origin dynamics, but, but more or less, uh, depending on their pecking order, uh, some just rebelled and left, you know, and I wouldn't see a lot of them when I was growing up. Not mm-hmm. that they were incommunicado, but they just kind of, as I ultimately yeah. did, they fled the household. They got out when they were old enough to get out and didn't look back. And we mm. all kind of forged our own paths. So mm-hmm. I didn't have any guidance of any sort from them either. Mm. Um, understandably, they were kind of grappling with it on their own terms. And uh, I mean, they were very loving in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I could always count on them as, as sort of a, a refuge. Right. Uh, my oldest sister, who was 16 years older than me, um, she was my second mom, and I would go visit her a lot to mm-hmm. escape the madness in the household. But we still never sat down and had any meaningful talks about what this disease is, how do we deal with it, where is recovery for us, none of that. So with the sibs that were 
nearer to your age, did you guys ever talk about dad and his problems and what can we do about it? And did you ever go to your mom with, you know, a united front of the siblings? Sadly, the answer is really no. Really? Uh, really, we just kind of all seem to deal with it individually. Mm-hmm. You know, there always is that sort of code of silence that I hear about now in meetings that seems to be permeates uh, alcoholic homes. It's mm-hmm. like nobody is, by not talking about it, always seems to be the preferred method of dealing with it. And mm-hmm. no, so we, you know, I, my outlet was, fortunately for me, I was gifted with a brain and, an, and this desire to do well. So I, my outlet was school and, mm-hmm. and going off to college. And my sister, who was one year older than me, she kind of went off and did her own thing. And yeah, that, that was how we coped. We, we kept our heads down until it was time to fly the coop. Hmm. Of the 10 kids in the family, are any of the others in recovery today? In fact, there are three of us that I can say definitively are in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my older brothers just celebrated, I want to say, 37 years. And um, and then I have a sister who uh, has a few years herself. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing about my older brother is I didn't even know. You know he never talked to me about his recovery. He probably didn't talk to me about it because he didn't think, we're not that close. He probably didn't think I had an issue to even, you know, and uh, it was funny. Once I got sober, I was like, well, where were you all this time? (laughs) What what did he say to that? He he was very stoic about it. He said, well, everybody finds their own bottom and everybody gets AA in their own way. And, you know, what's the point of me telling you if you're not ready? Sounds like a guy who works a decent program to give you that kind of feedback. Yeah. So as as I've learned more about it, I'm, I'm very impressed by his dedication to recovery. Yeah, that's really something. So three three of you in the family are, are in active recovery in AA. Is there any untreated going on that you know of? Do you have any other siblings who are reasonable candidates for the program? I haven't been able to detect anybody else who I would say. Huh. Um, I would have sworn that one of my brothers had an issue. Yeah. This is a different brother than the one I just mentioned. But to his credit, he has... You know, stabilized his life and done very well and his, he's retired now and it just goes to show you you, you never know you yeah, know some yeah. some people can abuse alcohol for years and then shake it off yeah. and yeah. for a real alcoholic like me I know better yeah I get that so 30% of your family 30% of the siblings are alcoholic in recovery yes maybe one or two others who might be but the rest Seem okay to you? Seem okay. I mean, you know, everybody's got their own issues and burdens. And so, um, you know, with the divorce when I was growing up and... uh, How old were you when that happened? I was only five. Okay. So the folks had been together 20, what, 21 years when you were born or something like that? Or when they broke up? Something like that. So after all that time, did your dad ever get sober? No. Is he still with us? He is not. When did he pass away? He passed when he was 73 years old. And uh-huh. uh, I'm sure the, the cause of death was heart-related, but I'm sure it was more or less caused by his uh, alcoholism. And your stepfather? He's also passed. I, I kind of lost touch with him once I left the house. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. he, he ultimately kind of removed himself from the family, and yeah. I didn't keep up with him. So you had all this firsthand experience of growing up in an alcoholic home, seeing what alcohol could do to people. 
having a father and then a stepfather who were both engaged. When was the first time you started using alcohol, and what did you think about, or did you have any thoughts about alcoholism as you took your first drink, or were you completely oblivious to it? I can remember having my first beer. I think my older brother handed it to me, and I was in high school. Uh-huh. But to me, it had no appeal. Hmm. It was just something I just kind of took to keep him happy and, and go hmm. along, and I didn't in any way develop a taste for alcohol, thank mm. God. Yeah. Even in college in the early years, it was something I did on the weekends with other people as appropriate. And uh-huh. uh, that continued really as probably as it was when I was in law schools when suddenly having a drink um, became more than just a social thing, but it became something that I felt the effects and I wanted more of it. Was there a defining moment that that occurred, that you went from being a social drinker to maybe becoming a functional alcoholic? Boy, I wish it were that easy, but... <laughs> it's never that easy. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And um, yeah, I could certainly look back and think of times that I overdid it and abused it and seemed to drink a little bit more than everybody else. And right. I was around some heavy drinkers mm-hmm. in law school. You know, there was a, a contingent of work hard and play hard people, and I... I tried to fit into that group, but um, maybe played a little too hard, too. But I made it through law school, but I I was already developing the the seat. Did alcohol get in the way of anything that you did during law school, or were you able to function relatively normally, even though you were drinking more? Well, looking back on it, I would say I could have performed a lot better, I think. Um, I performed very well in college, and I performed in law school and I got through law school and I uh-huh. passed the bar exam, but looking back on it, my performance was, I'm sure, impaired by the heavy drinking I was doing. Mm. Uh, but again, I didn't I didn't hit anything close to my bottom until well after I was out of law school. And, and I'm very grateful for that because uh, I've heard other stories. In fact, I just met a guy in this meeting today that you yeah. saw me, Howard, uh-huh. talking to, who uh-huh. just started law school. And he's telling me he's already got a pretty significant problem with alcohol. And by the grace of God, it didn't grip me as hard until after I I got through that. Isn't that something how you and I were just in that meeting that was his first meeting. You went up to him afterwards to to talk to him. And it turns out he's going into law school, something that you have some intimate knowledge about with regard to drinking and alcoholism. Another God deal. So these things occur all the time, and I'm, I'm really grateful for them. Thanks for sharing that with me because I didn't realize it. It was very, very cool. He got a desire chip today, too. He did. Yeah, that's very, that's very cool. So uh, were you a, a periodic drinker when you drank? Did you black out? Did you, were you able to remember what went on? What kind of drinker were you? Well, I teased my wife, uh, who I met in law school, by the way, uh-huh. and uh, so we both launched our careers at roughly the same time and got married immediately out of mm-hmm. law school. Mm-hmm. So it, she's been on this journey with me, wow. and I tease her because until we got married and settled down, I tell her I wasn't a daily drinker, and and I laughingly blame her for that because she grew up in a household where it, everybody got together at the end of the day and had their nightly cocktail. Mm-hmm. And and then dinner and maybe a glass of wine with dinner. And that was how she grew up. And I started doing that, too, because that's what we did. She and I would either go out to eat or go home and we have our cocktails. And so that's when I 
pinpoint that I became a daily drinker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not fair to, to, to blame her too much because, of course, she always kept it under some kind of control. And, and when we ultimately started having children, she definitely tailed back her drinking, whereas I didn't. So from the beginning, you weren't just a one cocktail and then let's have dinner type guy, huh? I would always find an excuse to, to work in a, a one or two more drinks. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then I developed uh, this um, much later, really, I developed the, uh, the sneaky habits of, uh, you know, sneaking an extra drink uh, when she wasn't looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it became to the point where I had to have a certain number to get to where I needed to be. And mm-hmm. uh, she would look at me and wonder, understandably, because she's not one of us, you know, why can't he just have two like me? Yeah, well, it's a natural thing for somebody who is able to drink to wonder about somebody who isn't. That that makes a lot of sense. During your drinking early on in your legal career and early on in your marriage, were there times when you noticed some problems associated with that drinking that you sloughed off to some other reason? Or did you ever have the sense that you might be the alcoholic following in the footsteps of your father and your stepfather? Yeah, over time, definitely, I got the sense that uh, I, I was doing too much with my alcohol, and, and it was creating problems. The typical scenario would be we'd have our evening together, I'd drink, mm-hmm. she'd stop, I'd keep drinking, mm-hmm. and fireworks would start. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'd say something horribly cruel or inappropriate, mm-hmm. and she would react, and we'd have a big knock down, drag out fight, and I'd huh. say even more horrible things, and then we'd separate, and in the next morning, and this is what I can remember even today, is waking up with that feeling of, oh my God, what did I say last night? Mm. Because I did start blacking out. I did start losing the ability to remember what happened, and uh, but I always knew in my gut I had said something horrible, and that I had some amendments, amends to make, uh, but it's hard to make amends when you don't know exactly what you said. <laughs> so you were becoming a blackout drinker then, weren't you? I was, yeah, and it got worse over time. Definitely, there were. It would just, it would just be uh, that morning after feeling of knowing uh, I don't know exactly who I spoke to, what I said. Uh, you know, sometimes I have to go look out in the garage and make sure my car was there. Oh my. Um, it was it was getting to that point. She was living through all this with you, or was she was she working a lot? Did she not see what was going on a lot of the time because either she wasn't there or she was engaged in something else? Or did she w- would she have noticed all of these different occasions for you? Oh, I'm sure if you asked her even today, she could probably uh, write a book and uh, <laughs> of her observations. You know, she was there the whole time, and uh, to her credit, um, I and I don't know to this day why she. She saw it, observed it, tried to change it, yeah. uh, but never, never was able to. But when the kids came along, that became her focus to make sure they were protected and safe. And mm-hmm. and I think she just thought, as long as uh, she kept me at bay, uh, that yeah, I'm sure if I kept drinking at some point, she would have just kicked me out. Yeah, and we were getting to that point. Sounds like you were. You know, for me, the blacking out actually became a a tool that I use to justify my behavior in that if I couldn't remember something that my wife was pissed off about that I did the previous evening, then I could still claim to be right. Hmm. As opposed, you know, and, and, and 
because I can't remember it. I don't know what's really true, so I'll choose the truth as opposed to, and I didn't black out a lot, so I knew when I had done something the night before. But I can imagine when you're blacking out and your wife is facing you down with things you did or said the night before and you have no recollection that she's the crazy one, not you. Well, and like a lot of other alcoholics, I became a master at, at gaslighting. Oh, yeah. Oh, you, you thought <laughs> I said that? That's, that's not what I said. Why do you even, why did you interpret it that way? What's wrong with you? Turning those tables on the, on the poor victim. And uh, yeah, and, and at some point when I was sneak drinking, she would confront me. Well, how many drinks have you had anyway? You saw me. I only had two. You know, uns unspoken would be in your presence. <laughs> right, right. And when you start blacking out at two or three drinks, but you go on to drink five or six more, it's easy to say that you stopped at two or three, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a horrible thing we do to the people we love is that, that just playing tricks with them yeah. to, to, to serve our addiction. And at some point, my my depression started increasing. I'd always had a kind of a low grade depression looking back mm -hmm. on it. And it got to the point where I sought help for that. And I got on some medications for that, but didn't stop drinking as they of course advised me yeah. to. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I was acting quirky and strange after that, I would blame it on the medication. You know, well, yeah. dear, you know, I'm still adjusting to this medication. So back off. Sounds like she cut you an awful lot of slack over the years. She did. Yeah. She did. What and do I, you attribute that to? Strong character. And I know that that may sound like she's enabling me, but she wasn't. She was doing everything she could to, to get me to stop. But I think she came from a stock of people that you don't get divorced. Right. You work out your problems. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she, she just kind of rolled up her sleeves and, um, you know, she's in Al-Anon now. I'll make that observation. And, and now even she will look back on it and say, I should have drawn more boundaries back when this was going on. But uh, she, she was doing her Al-Anon thing, trying to fix me. Hmm. That's interesting. You've got two girls. And when they first came into the picture, what was your drinking looking like at that point? I would say it was, it was manageable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and I think I was a pretty decent, attentive father for their first few years but mm -hmm. but by the time they were getting into their middle school years was when i was uh, not very attentive i see we have episodes where we still talk about it where i showed up at their school drunk uh for a parent teacher event uh-huh uh, thinking i'm getting away with it and just things like that so that started happening mm. and my kids to this day will point out uh, restaurants that they remember going to with us where dad lost his temper and smashed a wine glass or mm -hmm. berated a waiter, you know, things like that, where I was clearly drunk at the time. Mm -hmm. Was the alcohol impacting your daily job? I mean, were you drinking on the job or at, at you know, the martini lunches and that kind of stuff over time? Towards the end, I had started a habit of drinking at lunch. Mm. And you know, like a lot of alcoholics, I had these things that I would never do. And then I started doing them. And that was one. I would sneak out of the office and get in my car and just drive around with a bottle of vodka in my car. Mm. Uh, drinking at lunch kind of in my generation is not, not cool anymore. So, right. you know, I couldn't do it in front of clients, but, but I would do it alone. And uh, then go back to the office and pretend to work. But I was completely unproductive, I'm sure. Mm. 
and I didn't mention this, but it wasn't just my wife that kind of pushed me into the program. It was also a senior partner at my law firm. So he knew what was going on, didn't he? He could see it. And strangely, he, w- he was not in my office. He was in another city, in another state. So what he was observing was me drinking at social functions or partner meetings where, uh, you know, I was on company time, but we were drinking and yeah. I would always do too much. Yeah. So he put two and two together and figured out that if you're doing that with company functions, how must you be acting with clients and, and everything else? During the years that you were drinking from around the time of, of, you know, having children and your legal career, can you point to any particular times within that period that things happened that should have alerted or rung the bell for you that you had a problem and you just blew it off? Well, the blackouts particularly, like I said, I I, I would go to, say, a, a poker party. Right. And... Uh, not know the next day how I got home. And mm. I knew that was wrong. I knew there was something wrong. Um, and then I would go on out-of-town trips. And I, I love those because then I could just drink unobserved, mm-hmm. at least by my wife. Um, and the same things would happen. We had an annual partner meeting in my law firm, and, and it was a big firm, and hundreds of partners would gather, sure. in this case, Orlando. And we had cocktail events and meetings, and, and one of these cocktail parties was outdoor around a pool area. And, of course, I started hitting the whiskey hard as soon as it started and mm-hmm. kept going. And I was standing next to a uh, tree in the pool area talking to one of my partners who's kind of a prankster mm-hmm. at heart. And he could see my condition, I think, oh, yeah. and saw I was susceptible to being uh, manipulated, shall we say. <laughs> so uh, he said, hey, Marty. Um, I'm going to challenge you. I bet you $500 that you cannot climb this coconut tree next to me and get the coconuts <laughs> at the very top. Um, and it probably won't shock you, Howard, that in my state, that seemed completely reasonable. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I took him up on it and proceeded to climb the tree. And uh, I made it about halfway up, and then something came loose on the tree, or my grip loosened, and the next thing I know, I'm plummeting to the ground. And fortunately, uh, I hit something soft, I think a bush or something, and I really didn't hurt myself physically. Mm -hmm. But as I got up and dusted myself off, I kind of took a look around, and I'm seeing 200 of my law partners (laughs) staring in disbelief oh my gosh. Uh, at the spectacle of Marty climbing a tree. The punchline to this story, Howard, is that uh, it, there were no coconuts. It was a palm tree. Oh, geez. But, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the reality is the next day was the real horrible part when I had to go down into the main conference room where we were all meeting and, mm-hmm. you know, take the ribbing and the jokes and the whispers and the nudged you know, people nudging each other. And it was all over the meeting, of mm-hmm. course, what Marty did the night before. Mm-hmm. That's not the way I wanted to be known. I didn't want to be known as the ridiculous drunk guy, mm. you know, but you would have thought that would be okay. So you've got a problem with alcohol, but it, it wasn't. Did you see yourself as a drunk at that point and just willing to live with it? Or were you still in denial? I would say it was a little bit of both. I was in denial. I knew I had a problem with alcohol, but I just thought I could, 
episodes like that, I could somehow figure out how to stop them from happening in the future. And that was the denial part because I couldn't. Yeah. But I knew I was abusing alcohol. And, and uh, I would think to myself when I'd look at my children, I want to be sober when they're in their teen years and they're going to look at me and know what I'm doing. And I'll be lecturing them as a father about they shouldn't drink and do drugs. And I need to be an example. Mm -hmm. And the second thought I'd have after that is, oh, but I can't give up alcohol. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what the solution was going to be. And so I just kicked the can down the road and hoped something would present itself. And it did. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. When you got to 2012, when one of your, I guess, senior partners in the firm confronted you, with all this that's going on. One of the things that some of the other attorneys who've been on the show have said is that as long as they were producing, as long as they were making money for their firms, they got a hell of a lot more leeway with their drinking and abhorrent behavior than had it affected them. In other words, being a functional drunk, as long as they're producing, it's okay. You want to be a functional drunk? As long as you're making money for us, it's okay. What was that like in your experience? I think there's a lot of truth to that. At the time I was confronted, I had worked my way up to being the managing partner of this set office of our firm. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of responsibility and, and the office was performing reasonably well. Mm-hmm. So again, what you were just saying, and well, there's no real problem, but he is making sort of a spectacle of himself. So let's go visit him and have a talk. The shocking thing about that talk to me was not that they addressed my drinking, which I thought at that point needed to be addressed, but that their solution was, you have to stop drinking, Hmm. which I was shocked. I I thought, well, that's an overreaction. What were you expecting? Something along the lines of cool it, you know, ratchet it back a little bit. Um, You've been seen drinking too much. Just keep that and keep that under control. So that original thought you had as a kid that It's not about it being a disease, it's about willpower must have come to your mind at that point. Exactly. And Hmm. uh, when this partner looked across from me and said, uh, you have to stop, that was the time when I realized the jig is up. They know. Uh Uh, In a way that even my wife had never said to me, you have to stop. Uh Uh, And it turns out later, this gentleman was not, I don't think, in the program but he had some knowledge of the program and he suggested to me at that very point that I take some action, not mm-hmm. just stop. Right. He offered to send me to treatment, mm-hmm. um, I guess on the firm's nickel, which I immediately you know, waved off. Well, that's no, I can't do that. I'm, t- I'm too important to the firm and I can't disappear for 30 days and this and that. So the alternative he presented with me was, well, how about 90 meetings in 90 days? 
So he had some familiarity with the AA program, uh, probably because it was part of his job, I think, was going out and talking yeah. to guys like me in the firm. Sure. So I, I kind of half-heartedly agreed to that second option, but of course I didn't really pursue it. Um, I just mouthed the words and um, didn't stop drinking, but, but completely went underground with it and pretended to stop drinking. So did you fake it with regard to getting back to him saying, meetings are great, um, yeah, this AA is really doing the trick? And you probably would have known enough about it without ever having to go from your experience as a little kid, right? Right. I probably had enough knowledge to, to fake it. And, and I faked him and I faked my wife and I faked, you know, or at least I thought I was. Yeah looking, yeah, looking back, did you think that either one of them bought it? And if so, why? I think the partner was willing to let give me enough rope that uh, he probably knew enough at that point to know, well, if this guy's faking it, he's going to hit a wall. Going to hit a wall. And he was right. Yeah, yeah. And I did hit a wall, and I fessed up to him and my wife that I, I wasn't sober. And that's when I went to treatment at pretty much, you know, the last house on the block option. So that all happened in 2012 when, when they faced you down with uh, the fact that you had to stop drinking, gave you the option to do 90 and 90. Did you actually attend any AA meetings at that time, or, or did you fib? I actually did, and, and probably met you, Howard. I went to Thursday right, noon right. men's uh-huh. meeting that yeah. you and I attend together, yeah. and uh, that was my first meeting. So somehow the information got imparted to me, and I went to that meeting. And I remember my reaction was, these are a great group of guys, and there's a lot of joy in this room mm-hmm. and this isn't nearly as bad as I thought mm-hmm. but I didn't stop drinking and I didn't do what was suggested which was men gave me their phone numbers and told me to find the next meeting and gave I think it, I was even given a big book put all that in my backseat of my car and went about my business how many more meetings did you go to before you kind of gave up on it very sporadic mm-hmm. uh, I might go to one every week to two weeks and even that kind of fell away so were you sitting there counting the the differences instead of the similarities and meanings like most people do? Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. thought uh, these guys uh they're nice guys, but they, you know, they, they obviously need this whereas I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, having been at those original meetings, that came through loud and clear. <laughs> It really did. A lot of us were wondering whether or not you were really that sincere, but you talked a good game. I mean, you're a smart guy who can, I'm sure, persuade a lot of people about a lot of different things. Those of us who really cared about you, though, I think saw right through it. But we didn't know what to expect because sometimes a guy will do that for a period of time. And then one day he wakes up and he gets it. But you never got it. I didn't. I think the first time I lasted about 10 months. Yeah, I remember that. I got my nine month chip. Uh-huh. Even though you'd been drinking and... Well, no, that time I was sober. So this is after I got out of treatment. So you I, went to treatment. I went to treatment and I'm jumping ahead. After treatment, I did put together 10 months. Wow. And, and was going regularly to meetings. And, yeah. But you were probably seeing what you were just describing, which is I'm saying all the right things, but there's probably a lack of commitment in my eyes that you guys could see. And I thought I had the deal, but I didn't. There was still that nagging inside voice saying, yeah, hey, Marty, you could, you could still pull this off. Yeah, I'm sure. So I, I think it was an out-of-town trip, which tended to be my MO for, for my next two re- relapses. It would be I'd be out of town, out of the accountability zone, right. in a hotel somewhere, right. thinking, okay, I'll just have this one snort and uh, 
nobody will know, and yeah. I'll just go back and pretend like it never happened. And I know that that, that was a, the defining moment for you, which we'll get to in just a minute. When you went to treatment, what were your expectations? Well, I didn't go willingly in, mm. in any sense other than, you know, I wasn't in handcuffs, but I, I had... This is after you'd failed with the 90 meetings in 90 days. Exactly. And so it was, it was just to get out of the, the line of fire. So he was willing to give you another shot, even after you'd failed with the 90 and 90. He was. He went back to his original offer of giving you treatment. Unbelievably, he gave me another chance. He did. And I'm um, very grateful that they, they did. And um, as it happens, I was negotiating to leave the firm at that point, unrelated to any of this. I just had an opportunity to jump to another law firm. And uh, I had gotten pretty far along in my discussions with these other partners. And um, when, I, when I was on my way to treatment, I had to pick up the cell phone and call one of these guys and say, uh, uh, I'm about to disappear for a little while. <laughs> um, and I told them exactly what was going on because there wasn't any point in bullshitting. And, uh, and so I didn't know if they would be still interested when I got out, but they were. So mm. as it happens, I, I ultimately left firm number one, even though they didn't fire me as they should have, mm. and uh, joined this other firm. Is that when you went to treatment? Well, so this was right at the same time. And so... Uh, and then, you know, I got 10 months, went out, came back home, started sneak drinking again. And again, like any alcoholic knows, uh, that doesn't last. And so I was exposed, didn't go back to treatment that time, just came back into the rooms. Yeah. How long were you in treatment? Uh, let's say about 20-something days. Okay. So you were in a, a typical treatment where they get you sober, they, they teach you, they give you lots of head knowledge and everything else. Did you, uh, were you uh, introduced or reintroduced, let's say, to AA at that time as part of that process? Yes. Okay, so, so you came out, did you stay sober continuously after treatment through the 10-month period? I did. You did, okay. So what happened at 10 months? Well, that was the out-of-town trip. Now, I would guess that looking back on it, I had already started planning my relapse. In what way? I was probably starting to romanticize the drinking part again, um, but I can't pinpoint why or what. I just know that I found the opportunity to take a drink and I took it, mm -hmm. thinking in some incredible way that I could just get away with it once. And, and It'd all be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had the alcoholic mind mm -hmm. is, is all there is to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Got cleaned up again after a few weeks of trying that. I. I came back into the rooms and then put together, you know, got another sponsor and put together 14 months. Yeah. And again, I was outwardly doing everything right. Huh. But something deep down wasn't quite there yet. So you hadn't really hit your bottom or moment of clarity with regard to long-term sobriety. You were just going day by day or were you openly deceiving people about your sobriety? Well, I wasn't drinking and I did the steps. Uh, at least, you know, I did the steps. I don't know that I worked the steps, but I did the bare minimum. But yeah, so I had to have my next bottom and, and that's what it took. Did you ever get the sense when that was going on that once you got sober, you would be able to go back to drinking? Hmm. Once, once you completed this 10 or 14 month process, that sooner or later you'd be able to go back to it. Were you holding out hope for that anywhere along the way? You know, now that you ask it in that way, I think that's exactly what it was. Huh. I do. I think I looked at it kind of like I looked at law school. I'll get my diploma. You guys will teach me some skills. You'll teach me some self-knowledge. 
and I can use all that to go back to be a normal drinker someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. Wow. So I'm trying to get the chronology here correct. From treatment to 10 months sober? Correct. And then the slip? Correct. And within that 10 months, you were doing the work. You were you had a sponsor. You were working the steps? Correct. You slip at 10 months. You come back for, for, for another 14 months before slipping again? Correct. What happened in that 14 months? Or did you just tell me that? And I'm missing the connection. How long were you out from the period at which you slipped at 10 months to the period when you went back in and then slipped at 14 months? I would say a few weeks. Okay. I get it. Yeah. 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 Just enough to to figure out it wasn't working again and right. and wife is figuring out again what's going on and mm-hmm. again I'm gaslighting her and but then I have that night I come home and I'm stinking drunk and there's no pretending anymore so you know my MO at that point would be run back into the rooms get a sponsor get the heat off and so that's what I did uh-huh. and got 14 more months and again outwardly I would have thought I was on the right track huh so you were doing what you thought was the right thing to do the whole time, even though your heart might not have been in it? I think that's a good way to put it. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a powerful, cunning disease, as you know. And yeah. somewhere deep down in, in my subconscious, I thought I could still do this. Tell me the story about when the bottom fell out at 14 months for you. Well, this will be the famous uh, Marty Goes to Bellevue story. Okay, so this is at 14 months sober, you go on a business trip. Correct. And I would say mentally I had, I was in a bad place. Right. You know, because then one of the things I never got about the program was I had not yet learned to trust the other men and to talk outwardly mm-hmm. about what I was feeling, what I was fearing, what I was upset about. Mm-hmm. Still internalizing a lot of that. So whatever was going on externally, and I can't even tell you now what it was, it was, it was gnawing away at me. And then that was presented with the opportunity to leave town again. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I started drinking on the airplane up to New York City on a business trip. And I got up there and I was uh, planning to go to this dinner with clients, went out on that dinner, drank at that dinner, even though these partners of mine now with firm number two, the new law firm, knew that I was not supposed to be drinking. So mm. I was ordering, I had a side deal with the waiter. You pretend to bring me club soda, but you you load that with vodka. Oh my gosh. Right. So I'm, I'm openly drinking in front of them. You're pretending like you're drinking club soda, but they probably noticed somewhere into that, that you were getting drunk. Uh, if, if they didn't, they're not very <laughs> okay. good lawyers. But, you know, they're entertaining clients yeah. and they got other things on their mind right. to watch Marty drink. So, you know, nobody said anything or did anything. And that's, ultimately, I get back to my hotel room. And at this point in time, my wife and I have an understanding that when I'm traveling, I check in every night. Well, you know, like a lot of drunks, I get slurry when I drink too much. And I know this isn't going to go well. And mm. I've got to somehow get around this. But I just can't think of a way. So I just... I called her, and, and as soon as she heard my voice, the jig was up again, and mm-hmm. she knew what I was doing. And I was so demoralized at that point by my own behavior and my own failure again that I just hung up the phone and decided, you know what? I'm better off just checking out. Hmm. And we're not talking about the hotel now, <laughs> are we? not talking about <laughs> checking out of the hotel. We're talking about checking out of the hotel of life. Um, I, I think somewhere in the days preceding that, I had somehow started thinking about 
suicide. I don't know why. I, I think I was in a depressed state of mind already. And then the alcohol just took it to a whole different level. So I go into the bathroom of this hotel room and I pull out my Gillette razor and uh, proceed to just start hacking away at my wrist. This is one of those with five blades in it. Exactly. Sort of thing. Oh. Yeah. They, they design those things very well. They do. Not to allow <laughs> what I was trying to do. Oh, man. So I was just basically making a big mess and, and blood was starting to come out, but it wasn't, and it, you know, it wasn't lethal yet. And um, this is a part of the story I often forget to mention, but... I figure out this Gillette razor is not going to do the job. So I think what I did was I walked over to the phone in the room and I called down to room service and asked them to bring me a sharp knife. Oh, no. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that happened. Huh. Uh, but at the same time, unbeknownst to me, my wife, who had been trying to frantically get me back on the phone and couldn't, she calls the front desk apparently tells them something's wrong. Go check on my husband. The next thing I know, somebody's knocking on my door Next thing I know, a bunch of people are in my room. Next thing I know, EMTs and police officers are in my room, mm -hmm. patching me up and, and talking to me and asking me why I'm doing this. And at this point, I'm in a drunken fog, but I'm, I'm trying to convince them that really I'm just having a bad drunk. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I now realize the insanity of what I'm doing. And I invited them all to just leave the room. It'd be okay. Yeah, everything will be fine. You've done your job. Thank you very much. And one of the MTs and the cops said, no, that's not what happens now. The next thing I know, they cuffed me. They put me in some kind of clothing. I, I think I had my pajama bottoms and a trench coat on and uh, my, my dress shoes for my suit. <laughs> and uh, they marched me down through the hotel lobby out into an ambulance. And they take me down to uh, Bellevue Hospital where I was first taken to the ER part to, to get me patched up. And um, by the way, they did remarkable work. I mean, to this day, you can't. Did you have stitches? I, I think they just managed to, to glue it together somehow. Wow. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. But once they got that taken care of, then they took me down to the other side of the hospital where they, mm -hmm. they have the psychiatric ward. Checked me into the psych ward. In the psych ward where I sat for I don't know how many hours. And every once in a while, a psychiatrist would come by and interview me and try to find out why I was trying to kill myself. And I would, my stock response was, uh, I just had a bad night. I'm a drunk, I'm an alcoholic and mm. I'm over it. I'm not going to do it again. I realize now it was insanity. You can let me go now. You mm -hmm. know, that was always my pitch. Mm -hmm. Whenever I get a person talking to me, I'd say, you can, <laughs> you can let me go now. You got more serious cases here to deal with. I'm a smart enough guy. You don't have to worry about me. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing I would tell them is I know what to do. Yeah. And what I was saying to them was, I know there's a solution for guys like me. Were you mentioning AA as, as one of those solutions? I was. I, I know how to do AA. I've done it before. I, if you just let me out, I will do it again. Mm. And uh, eventually that worked. Hmm. And they let me out. And uh, that was a Thursday morning in February of 2015. My sobriety date is February 26, 2015. So how long were you in Bellevue? I wasn't there for more than 12 hours. Yeah, the, the, you know, by the time they let me out, it was probably mid-morning uh -huh. uh, on that Thursday. And, and they gave me my stuff and they gave me a little plastic baggie with my wallet. And, uh -huh. and they said, you're discharged. And hmm. I walked out onto the street in Manhattan, some busy 
avenue, you know, people are going to work and mm -hmm. normal city life going on all around me and my hair sticking out and I'm <laughs> wearing a trench coat and dress shoes and pajama bottoms. And, you know, that was that moment yeah. or that so many alcoholics have where I realized this is the crossroads. This is, I can go left and find a bar down the street and just pick up where I left off or I can go right and go get my rest of my stuff, get on an airplane and go back to Houston and, and get back into the program. Hmm. And thank God I chose that. When you made that decision, do you remember what you were thinking at the, at the moment of that decision, go right or go left? I knew at that point, I didn't want to live this way anymore. Uh -huh. yeah. And I knew I wanted sobriety in a way that I had never wanted it before that time. Yeah. And I also knew that I didn't know if I had a marriage to go back to. Uh -huh. And I didn't know if I had a job since my partners had seen me drinking. I didn't know if any of that was still there, but I knew no matter what, I wanted to be sober. Did your wife find out about the suicide attempt and did your partners find out about that as well? My wife knew because uh, uh, the, the professionals at the hospital had called her uh -huh. and kept her abreast of, of what was going on with me. Yeah. But my partners never found out. I never, never disclosed that. Wow. The last they had seen of me that night was I was leaving after the dinner. They never knew, and I never felt the need to educate them how close my, their partner had come to killing himself. So I got home. You got on a plane, had the opportunity to buy a drink on the plane, I'll, I'll bet. You bet. What was that like? I just remember sitting there thinking, you couldn't force a drink down my lips. Cool. I was, yeah. I was so done with drinking mm, mm -hmm. and my wrists are throbbing and bandaged up and I, I land in Houston and it was getting towards evening now and on a Thursday night and I got in my car at the airport and I called my wife and said I'm going straight to a meeting mm. which I knew there was one at eight o'clock that night that I'd been to before and I drove straight to that meeting mm -hmm. walked in grabbed who is now my sponsor Dale C mm -hmm. and said Dale I need a new sponsor will you sponsor me and he said, yes, I will. And you had known him from before. Had you gotten close to him during the 14 months or the 10 months? I had seen him at a lot of meetings, and yeah. he was one of those guys that had what I wanted. Uh huh. So yeah. you know, maybe if I hadn't seen him and I'd seen another guy, I would have asked the other guy. But Dale was there, and I asked him. And, and I remember this feeling of, of comfort and, and peace yeah. I had at that moment. I was in a room of AA with a man who's going to help me mm -hmm. and other men too, other men I knew. Yeah. And they literally sat me down in between, you know, two of them and we had a meeting. I knew I was okay. And that was on that Thursday night. That's February 26, 26 of 2015. Yep. So that's your sobriety date. That's when you embraced AA in full. In full. Well, I remember when you came back and I remember how grateful everybody was to see you again and grateful to Dale for taking you under his wing because he works a really fine program. I can see him reflected in you and then reflected in the guys that you sponsor. So that's a beautiful lineage. So you got to work. You finally, no more deception, no more lying. What was Dale's approach with you in the beginning? Were you ready to start from square one or no, I did that already. Let's move to something else. What was your approach? Well, I, my approach was to do whatever Dale told me. Okay. Uh -huh. I mean, I had no agenda, and he said, we're going to rework the steps from, mm -hmm. from number one on. So mm -hmm. that's what we did. We met once a week at our local retreat here down in Houston, mm -hmm. which you know about, Howard, and where a lot of alcoholics go to, to meet and mm -hmm. have meetings. And we met there every week and worked the steps. Mm -hmm. And we didn't rush it. 
We spent mm-hmm. a lot of time on step one. Obviously, I was not getting step one, and uh, but we worked the rest of them. And I, I at that time and to this day, and I'm six and a half years in now, I go to a meeting every day. That's great. Uh, to me, I, I view this as I've seen now the consequences. I've, I know what waits me out there if mm. I decide to to get clever again. So I, I've decided I've got a deadly disease and uh, I'm going to treat it every day. Now, would you say that you had a spiritual awakening upon coming into the program or was there a, an awakening over a period of time? How did spirituality enter the picture for you early in AA? I would say it's been more of the educational variety mm-hmm. like a lot of people. I uh, was very agnostic, probably even would have called myself an atheist mm-hmm. uh, before I came into the program. And during the first two stints of sobriety, I would say that didn't really change, mm-hmm. even though I might have said it did. But in this round, I have decided to have a real relationship with a higher power. Mm. Um, I pray and meditate every morning. Mm-hmm. I communicate with my higher power in the way that I know how, which is just to, to pray and, mm-hmm. the, and to ask for guidance and, uh, and then listen to the voice of God through other alcoholics. But I have no more question about, is there a higher power? And is that higher power the only thing between me and my next drink? Mm. That's a great realization to come to, isn't it? It is, and it's so releasing when it happens. You know, I, that fight I had for 40-some-odd years about refusing to give over, quote, my will to this nebulous thing out in the heavens, I don't have to have that fight anymore. Yeah, and what's great is to not have to spend the first part of your sobriety like I did. Vir- vir- uh, virtually the first year of my sobriety, I spent thinking I could do the program my way without a higher power if I just applied what I was seeing through my lens and through my understanding. And it didn't work out that way. And I, I nearly went out over that. It wasn't until I came back and got a sponsor who said, like yours did, we got to start at the beginning and you got to get this powerlessness. You need to get the unmanageability. You need to understand you know, you need to come to believe certain things. You need to make certain decisions to turn your will and your life over, or you're not going to get this. And I guess at that point, I was ready to listen. Sounds like you were you were at that juncture as well. Very much so. And I remember reading in We Agnostics um, the part where, you know, it says we have to make a decision. Yeah. Is there a God? Is there not? Yeah. Is God everything or is God nothing? Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, my indecision led me to a psych ward in New York City in a public hospital. So how about just making a decision? And I'll, yeah. I'll decide there is. Yeah, yeah. And, and never question that sense. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's a great way to think about it too when, when you stop and consider it. So six and a half years you've been sober now and I get to see you a lot. And that, to me, that's a blessing. I get to see you a couple, sometimes three times a week, which is very cool. And I'm a big believer that the more times you see people during the week, the closer you're gonna to get to them more quickly. Which is, which is very cool. During the six and a half years, can you think of any times that have really challenged your sobriety and how did you, how did you respond to them and how did you get through them? Well, I'll make this one easy. No. Cool. I really haven't. I haven't even come close to having a, a overwhelming sense to, to have a drink, but, and I've also, but there's a reason for that, Howard. Right. That is what you just said. Right. I don't let myself get away from the program. Mm-hmm. I have not, I, I, like I said, I go to a meeting virtually every day unless circumstances absolutely won't permit it. And I call my sponsor every day, mm-hmm. even now. Mm-hmm. And I 
pray and meditate. So I stay in the middle of the herd, as we say. Yeah. And for that reason, I don't think I've ever gotten to the point where I'm, I'm looking at a bottle of whiskey longingly and thinking I might just have that. I haven't even gotten close to that. However, I know that could happen. Yeah. I've heard enough stories in these rooms about that happening. But I've never heard about it really happening to someone who's really plugged into the program. Let me ask you, with regard to that, do you think you're more at risk when things are going really, really well or when things are going really, really poorly? In other words, if something really catastrophic occurred in your life, do you think you'd be closer to the drink then than if you, you know, the, win the $600 million lottery or something like that? I don't have any doubt for me it would be that latter thing. That, really? Yeah, when things get so good that I don't feel like I need AA anymore would probably be my biggest danger point. Yeah. When, I, when things are, and this is the difference too in my sobriety now versus I mentioned before, I didn't open up. I didn't talk to other men about mm -hmm. what I was feeling or fears. Now I do those things. Mm -hmm. So when you ask, you know, if something really catastrophic happened, I think I'd be more inclined to dig into the program now. Mm -hmm. But if things are going great, and everything's wonderful, it's easy to convince myself, well, maybe, maybe I am cured or maybe I just don't need this. God has rewarded me now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it hasn't happened. And, and that's because I don't let myself wander away. Yeah. I know you do service work because I, I know the men that you sponsor and I see, like today, I mean, I saw you engaging with the newcomer. How has the quality of your program been affected by service work and in what in what ways do you do most of your service work? I do try to sponsor. Um, and, you know, just as small examples, I, I try to call other men and mm -hmm. who aren't my sponsees, but mm -hmm. that I haven't heard from in a while mm. or haven't seen in a meeting and just check in on them. And, and that's such a marked deviation from my prior behavior, even in first rounds of sobriety, is just thinking about another person other mm -hmm. than myself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I volunteer in other areas, not just AA. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of service work with my church and mm -hmm. for nonprofits. And that's what sobriety has given me, the opportunity to be of service, not just in AA, but outside of AA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, but of course, you know, just showing up at meetings to me is a, a form of service. It really is because yeah. I have been out of town on occasion where I've found what I thought was a meeting and nobody's there. And it's very disheartening. It and, is. And I don't want that to ever happen if I have a choice in any of the meetings that we go to. Yeah. Even if two of us are sitting there, there's somebody there if a newcomer walks in. Well, the thing I've noticed about you in meetings, and I think to consider you and your sobriety and the strength of that, I think there's a direct correlation to watching you in the beginnings and after meetings. You're you're checking in with a lot of different people. I see you sticking around after the meeting and chit-chatting. Whether it's anything of substance or not, you're still present. You're a presence. And, you know, I don't think anybody would have to describe who, which Marty was that? Oh, he's the guy who drove the, you know, oh, he's the guy who sat in the chair by the lamp. You know, I think the minute people say, yeah, Marty, they know exactly who you are because you've made yourself present like that in meetings. And I, and I got to hand it to you for doing that. I think that that's a great way to operate. 
Well, I think you're putting a very positive spin on the fact that I also kind of make myself known in my sarcastic uh, barbs. And, yeah, uh, but you've also become the butt of your own jokes, which is great. And everybody respects that. And that's a really fine quality for somebody to be able to look at themselves and, and laugh and not take anything that anybody else says too seriously. Because I've heard some guys say, hey, tone it down with Marty, man, you know. <laughs> but there's something about you that makes me think you can take it. But yeah, come on, guys, don't go too far with that. <laughs> I get that. Well, and it's funny. I've actually thought of that as almost a form of service. It's like yeah. if I can give some guys a release through laughter and at my expense. Yeah, you do. I'm too. happy to do it. Yeah. it. It doesn't bother me. And yeah. that's another gift of the program is my ego. It's still there. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's healthy, yeah. but it is downsized. And, and it allows me to laugh at myself and not take things so damn seriously. Yeah, I've noticed that. And it's a it's a wonderful gift to be able to pass on to other men. And for them to know there's one guy in the meeting, one or, you know, there's just a handful of guys who do that. But it it warms everybody else up in the meeting. It, it, it gives that cohesion to the group. And um, I love the fact that you've been a part of our men's meetings. And now I'm seeing you at some of these other mixed meetings, which is really cool. Um, one of the women in the meeting today said to me, the reason she likes this meeting so much is because she really feels like the men in this meeting have a very mature, respectful attitude towards the women in the room. And I never really stopped to consider that, but maybe from a woman's point of view, that is a really big thing. So to hear her say that about this meeting makes me feel even stronger about it. I get that. And I have the same reaction. I mean, let's be honest, when when the different sexes mix, you know, you can get distracted. But in this particular meeting and some of the others I go to, everybody's there for the right reason, which is to help each other get sober and stay sober. Yeah. And and even even at that, though, I still recommend to the guys I sponsor that at least half, if not two thirds for some of them should be men only meetings and then do a mixed meeting once or twice a week because that's that's what they need at that particular point. So and I know you do you do a lot of men's meetings and you're involved in in that way as well. As we wrap up, I wanted to get your feedback on the quality of your sobriety. Where would you rate the quality of your sobriety today, right now? And in what areas do you would you look for improvement or in what areas do you find that perhaps you need to keep an extra sharp lookout uh, at the wolves on the ridge, so to speak? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's hard to answer it in a way that doesn't somehow sound egotistical, no, but okay. um, I, I am I'm grateful, not proud, because I'm told I, I should be grateful and let others be proud, but yeah. I'm grateful that I am very sober today mm-hmm. and today, but being a Tuesday Yeah, <laughs> and I'm also mindful that tomorrow's Wednesday and I, I might go off the rails because this is a one day at a time program, but yeah. I, I think I know what to do because you guys have told me what to do. And so all I have to do is do those things. I right. have to stay in action. And like everyone else, there's always more service I could be doing. Mm-hmm. I could sponsor more men. Mm-hmm. The meetings I go to, typically there aren't very many newcomers. Right. And so I have thought multiple times I need to go to where there are those newcomers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they're around. Yeah. Um, I just have to make the effort to get there because mm-hmm. working with newcomers, like that guy we just talked to today, uh-huh. that's where it is. That's where real recovery is, is yeah. passing the message. Yeah. I thought I heard him say he he just drank within the last 24 hours. So he's a real newbie, isn't he? 
his, and of course, you know, you want to say the exact right thing that will just lock him into recovery and, right. and, and you can't. So all I encouraged him to do was try not to drink today and go to a meeting tomorrow. Yeah. That's about all I can offer at this point. And that's good advice that, that you can never go wrong telling somebody to not drink and go to a meeting because even if that's the only thing they do in the meeting, they're going to hear about the other things they need to do. But if they're not, if they're not sober and not going to a meeting, they're never going to get that part of it, right? Exactly. That makes a lot of difference. So you've enjoyed a lot of great gifts through your sobriety. I guess, uh, is it safe to say you'd recommend sobriety as a better deal and for, for everybody who needs it? I would say so. I mean, if, if life is unmanageable and, and if you're like me and you, you don't know what's going to happen after you take your first drink, mm -hmm. then give sobriety a try. Yeah. And um, it may not take the first time. It didn't with me. But I kept coming back and... Uh, I'm six plus years into this thing and life is very, very good. I think that's a beautiful way to wrap it up. Your perseverance, your willingness to give credit where credit is due. And I think the two of us see eye to eye on a lot about AA, the importance of meetings, the importance of fellowship, the importance of prayer, the importance of connectedness with the steps and the traditions of the program. I am super glad that you were able to do this interview. It's something that I've wanted to do for a while. And to be able to hear your whole story in kind of this intimate setting, but knowing that it's going to be quite valuable to anybody who hears it, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. You're a beautiful man. I love you. And I'm so glad you're in my life as part of my sobriety story. And I'm, I'm just want to say thanks for doing this today, Marty. Well, thank you too, Howard. I mean, you are exemplar of what service means, and this is just part of it. And uh, I love you too. Well, thanks, Marty. I'll see you at the next meeting, won't I? Yes, you will. Okay, my brother. Thanks again. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Marty S. for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to your fellow AAs? As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. Of course, you can subscribe to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs. No advertising is allowed. No one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 